Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Romani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? This week, I was thinking about penises a lot. That's because the biologist Emily Willingham is releasing her book Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis, on September the 22nd, and we were lucky to get an advanced read. And the book is fascinating. Her doctoral research animal was the red-eared slider turtle, and she spent five years studying its reproductive systems. So she's totally into turtle and tortoise penises, and she takes us into the fascinating world of evolutionary biology and genitalia research. Many of the people into genitalia research are also entomologists or scientists who study insects, because as she says in her book, no other group of animals offers an utterly batshit array of weaponized, decorated, curly, spiked, thorny, huge, versatile, intramitter, which is her word for penises basically in this book, that anthropods display. Actually, the most fascinating thing about this book was not just all about the animal world and, and its penises. It just highlighted for me the absolute bias in science. We talk about society and culture on this podcast, which is constructed by humans, but we always kind of assume that science is science and it's fact-based and there's no arguing with it. But this book really, really brings to light just how much bias there is in science and how much the men who have been really dominating this field since basically Darwin until recently when women started getting PhDs in biology and were giving access to that field and education, just how much they got it wrong, basically. Yeah, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has a really great quote where she says, people make culture, culture doesn't make people. And I think that in terms of like relationship to science, that's you know also relevant, right? Culture dictates science, science doesn't dictate culture. It works kind of both ways. So the culture informs how these scientists are going about their research and the questions they're asking, how they're looking at everything. And then that in turn feeds the culture again and leads to sort of more bias. So one of the things we sometimes talk about is how women have been erased from history and only men's stories and ideas get aired, but it's the same in science. So there's been an absolute washing away of female genitalia, basically, in biology, because men have chosen to study exclusively penises from their penis-centered point of view. And then They've also, in their research, foisted their biases and assumptions onto the subject. So if we look at, for example, ducks, so ducks have notoriously... Sorry, not to interrupt, but I loved the entire section where she was talking about how how she was taking part in a dissection of ducks' genitalia, and they were only dissecting the male genitalia of a duck, so she went outside to catch another duck, one that was intended to be slaughtered and eaten anyway, so she didn't just go kill a random duck, but she went and got the duck so that she could dissect the genitalia of a female duck because they had just thrown it away on the other ones. Yeah, so what they were doing, this was in 2005, and the scientist is Patricia Brennan. She's a biology professor at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. And she made a visit to the University of Sheffield to learn from the evolutionary ornithologist Tim Burkhead how to dissect bird genitals. And when she arrived, she found that they were dissecting the genitalia in birds 
and it seemed to consistently focus on males or only on the specific sperm storage area high in the vagina. So, yeah, during the anatomical investigations of the animals, the vagina would be cut all the way to the top to get to the sperm storage area, and the rest of it, the entire thing, would be thrown out, unexamined. So, obviously, she has a lot of questions, like... What role did the vagina have? You know, these massive penis, how was the vagina like inside? And nobody could answer those questions, despite the fact that duck penises had been studied so much. And until she started doing her research on ducks that were going to be slaughtered anyway and stuff, everyone just assumed that duck vaginas were entirely passive, but they're actually really not at all. They're really complex. They have the kind of maze-like system. There's a whole lot going on there to counteract the aggressive male duck penis, but all these men just assumed that the penis was the main thing and the vagina wasn't doing anything, which is absolutely not true. The thing that I found, well, the entire book was incredibly fascinating, but the thing that really, really stuck out to me was when she was talking about how the shape of the human penis sort of indicates that rape is not part of the, like is not natural in humans, because in animals where there's forced mating, the penis is designed in such a way that it can like latch or hook. Also the shape of the female vagina, because she was saying that other female genitalia, in order to sort of counteract the forcefulness, they sort of have some sort of defense mechanism, for lack of a better way of describing that. She describes it way more eloquently and, you know, she's a scientist. And so, yeah, basically that that indicates that, yeah, no, forced mating is not part of the human condition. And I just like that there's like once and for all an argument. Like I have scientific things to back it up to be like, oh, by the way, whenever, you know, because we live in a society with rape culture is still a thing and some insane people still make the argument. Like I think she mentions in the book that one professor who he does an entire thing about how force mating or rape is part of our culture to this day people do still argue that the male is supposed to be more aggressive that rape culture is part of some sort of biological thing in us but as she says really eloquently actually in the book a human penis can't even penetrate a ripe avocado that's how non-dangerous it is it's so funny but actually, she makes some really, really, really good observations on rape culture because she points out that the cult of the penis basically arose from, you know, when, when human beings stopped being hunter-gatherers and started settling down and with, with farming techniques had land. And then to protect that land, they used to erect massive scarecrows that represented a penis so represented sort of protection or potency over that land and fertility became very important in in our society you know obviously it's understandable that at that time people knew that the penis and the ejaculation that happened had something to do with fertility and birth so they elevated the status of the penis and we've just gone on and on to like make it more and more powerful and symbolic. And I guess we can see that in how we build high rises is the same thing and how you stake your territory and things like that. And our culture has taken it to the extreme, this focus on the penis and the potency of the penis. And you can see this in science. All these scientists are really 
focusing on penis size or penis potency, but they're not looking at the vagina at all. And they're also separating the penis from the rest of the body. The assumptions of science are not objective. And that's one of the things that really struck me in this book. She's trying to be as objective kind of as possible. I think the the thing you said about the cult of the penis is interesting because given the chance, I feel like all cis men will draw a penis on anything. Do you remember in like school? Kids do that all the time, especially boys. They'll just draw a penis on anything. It is so prominent or worshipped in like a weird way. Because like nobody would ever go and draw a vagina somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Like Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, when she drew even hinted at the symbolism around the vagina, it was like a big deal. And yet every schoolboy will, you know, draw a penis everywhere. Yes. So yes, she talks about the oldest known penis in the world, which is a crustacean, a crab-like creature, which had a hard shell. And when scientists came across this, four men who wrote the paper were super impressed by the penis and they named it a word in Greek, which basically means amazing swimmer with a large penis. Like, the real scientific wow about the discovery was that the animal seems much like its modern-day cousins, suggesting that its lineage has changed very little in 425 million years, and that it was boneless and well-preserved enough for animals, you know, to look at it. It was a really big find, but they kind of just focused on the penis. So similarly, female hyenas have really long, massive clitorises, or clitori, I don't know how you pluralize that. But instead of the men who discovered this calling it amazing savannah dweller with long clitoris, they just call it large clitoral pseudopenis. So again, it's centering the penis. My professor at university, she was, English was not her first language, and she for some reason had googled the etymology of the word vagina, and she got really angry because it means place to put a sword, and she was like, (laughs) smoke coming out of her ears, she was like, they didn't give it its name of its own that sort of encompasses its entire beauty and its entire thing, nope, it's just or again, centered around the penis. And then again, because all the male scientists have been focusing on the penis for so long, what's happened is, as the researcher Patricia Brennan of the Ducks put it, that the females and their genitalia and their reproductive behaviors becomes a kind of copulatory black box. So it remains kind of a mystery. But then all the male scientists are terming in their papers, females as, you know, or the female reproductive system as cryptic. And they say a lot of it is to do with trickery and things like this. And this, again, goes back to, you know, the cultural idea of men not being able to understand women and what do women want and they are other and they're out to trick us. And all of these cultural stories and paranoias and insecurities weave their way back into the science This sort of goes back to our last episode about pickup artists, right? You have these people who've built their entire existence around how to manipulate and trick women. Like, here's, you know, the skill to seduce a woman. As if women are people who you should probably just talk to like normal humans because we have interests and personalities. So you don't need to come up with cheesy pickup lines. You just need to find someone you genuinely connect with on a completely human level, right? It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So what she's saying is you can't just reduce 
whole groups as we have in Western culture. And she does go into other cultures and how they do things differently or see, see men and women differently. She talks about one group of people in Indonesia, I've forgotten exactly which people, but they, for example, see women as people who are experts in rice, you know, <laughs> rather than distinguishing them purely based on their genitals. It made me think of how, like, in English, when someone is pregnant, you say they have a bun in the oven, which sort of just implies that, oh, yeah, the man's just put something there, right? Mm. It, it just makes the woman sound so passive in the, like, it's not like a two-part step. It's just like, I'm just going to deposit something and then, oh, yeah, I've just put an entire baby in you. Exactly. And what's been overlooked, for example, is the vagina or the female reproductive organs influence on shaping the male reproductive organs and like this very binary way of looking things has been really unhelpful to science right well that goes back to the example from before when she was talking about forced mating if the vagina had indicated that it was against forced mating the penis would have evolved in such a way to sort of counteract that yeah and then also by looking at the animal world what's really interesting for example is she goes into same-sex mating. So dolphins are notorious for same-sex mating, and many, many, many other animals have same-sex mating. And it's not always about reproduction. Mm -hmm. It's about forming bonds. And also a lot of sex is about pleasuring the female or getting... It's like a test run almost for finding a mate. So the males do have to impress the female in some way, either while having sex for the first time or, you know, outside of that by croaking and singing. Some genitalia, they can even sing or they have multifunctions, different functions. There's so much complexity in it that you can't, it can't just be reduced to one thing, which is this Christian kind of idea that you should only have sex for reproductive reasons. The animal world shows that it's simply reductive and not true. She talks about the example of the frogs, where she was saying that the male frogs croak, you know, loudest to attract the female. They also, at the same time, risk becoming prey because they, obviously they're being loud and drawing attention to themselves. And it sort of made me realize how in some instances the female, in this case frog, has a lot of power doesn't she? She can choose who she wants to mate with based on who is croaking the loudest, whereas the frog is just like, anyone will do, whoever comes along, whoever hears my croaking. So it's kind of funny that, well, not funny, I mean, I guess science in our shitty culture has sort of proved this, but that there's a limited amount of eggs, but there's kind of an endless supply of sperm. So technically, sperm is an oversaturated currency, I guess, in a little bit, whereas eggs are a scarcity. So technically, shouldn't it be the other way around? Obviously, humans don't just have sex to reproduce. We're like dolphins in that way. But technically, if you look at like the scarcity, it should be the other way around than it is in our culture, right? Um, yeah, so like in, in other animals, there was a study done about moles. And so there's this idea of like pre-copulatory sexual selection making choices based on sex that they have and they prefer kind of longer size penises so when the penis is inserted before it ejaculates they can either reject or decide to go ahead with a male because the length of the penis I think in this case influences or is related to the length of the spine which is obviously going to be good for the species to continue. One of the first things that I thought of when we started reading this book 
was actually the word phallus in and itself. Just because I remember from English class, pathetic fallacy, which is like a literary device and the word fallacy. And I was just curious to know if they come from the same root. So the term is a loan word from the Latin phallus, itself borrowed from Greek, which is ultimately a derivation from the Proto-Indo-European root bele, which means to inflate or to swell. And it's comparable with the Old Norse, which is similar to the modern Icelandic boli, which means bull. Old English bullock, bullock, and the Greek word for whale. And the word fallacy comes from the late 15th century Middle English word phallus, which comes from the Latin fallacia, which comes from phallix, which means to deceive. So even though I guess they both come from Latin, in the end the words evolved in such a different way from different sources. It was so interesting to me, basically, that the word to deceive and the word that we use to represent something penis shape sound almost exactly the same. The penis is a lie. So yeah, this book comes out on September 22nd by Emily Willingham. And it's called Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. It's incredibly fascinating and you will never ever look at human genitalia the same way. And these are three takeaways from the book that might help you be a better person. The first thing is that we talk a lot about how to be literate when it comes to media, for example. We talk about, you know, how a story is framed and who wrote it and why and all that kind of stuff. But there's a similar thing that I learned from this book, which is, you know, how to be literate when it comes to science. And we could all really benefit from not maybe trusting every single article about scientific studies that comes out or scientific papers or even books because there is bias in everything. You could ask the same questions. Who wrote it? What questions were asked? How was the research conducted? What were the numbers of people asked and all of that kind of stuff? And this book really highlights faults in studies because of how they were conducted. Thing number two, if you're a woman or even a man, in depictions of men and women from caves Men were depicted by male scientists, so be careful when using the term biology as an argument, because science is a story too. Remember, everyone tells everything from their own point of view, so always be critical, and always look at who's written what, and who's telling whose story. Yeah, that was really fascinating in the book, that when we see pictures of cavemen, the man is always standing erect with a weapon or something, and the, and the women are just crouched down, just like with the babies, yeah. totally powerless. And that's all based on men's perception. Exactly. And number three, one of the really interesting things that I learned about evolutionary biology here is we always talk about the survival of the fittest. And I think our entire culture perceives this as, you know, that's the survival of the strongest or there's a focus on winning. But actually survival mm -hmm. of the fittest refers to, the correction is that it refers to, it's the survival of the best fitting. So if you are best fitting to your environment and everything around you, then that is what that means. It doesn't mean it's not antagonistic. It's more about, you know, how you're fitting into your environment as a whole. And I think we could all learn about that or maybe take that approach, kind of less competitive, but more cooperative approach to how we are interacting with the people and animals mm. and our surroundings. But I guess sort of like in that argument, people, you know, because technology, one could argue, is just humans adapting to the changing world and sort of 
figuring out a way to survive in the world. So technically, people who are always labeled nerds or geeks are the fittest, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. the ones who have evolved the best to sort of navigate the world that we live in. Whereas a bodybuilder, while I'm sure wonderful and lovely, kind of hasn't. With the world that we live in now, physical strength isn't as important as it potentially once was. Right. And that's all from us from this week. Have a great week. We will talk at you next week. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.